But this morning, please turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. We will finally finish the chapter today. Have you ever thought about the word hope? The title for the message today is called Hope That Anchors the Soul. So we're going to talk about hope. Hope that anchors the soul. But think about that word hope for a moment. In our common vernacular, we use the word hope quite a bit. We say things like, I hope that I get that job. I hope that this year the economy doesn't enter into a recession. I hope my business sales, my revenue increase this year. Or I hope, and we use that over and over. What I'm getting at, though, is the word hope in those ideas. It really means maybe. It means we think it could work out, but we're not entirely sure. So we say we hope that it does work out. But we're not 200% positive. We may even be 99% positive that something works out in our favor. So we'll use the word hope. You could say, I hope this or that works out. But again, I'm stressing something here that's going to be very important in this message today. That idea of hope is uncertain. Again, it could be 99% certain, but it's not 100% certain. So that's not what we mean when we say hope. We don't mean, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this will happen. We usually wouldn't say, I hope that will happen. We say things like, I am absolutely positive that this thing will happen. Again, when we say hope, it's more of a, a maybe, a strong desire that it could. What I want to share with you this morning is God's idea of hope. And I want to come out the gate and say as we go through this, God's idea of hope, His method of giving hope is nothing like what I just described. Whenever the Bible talks about hope from God, it never gives the definition of any uncertainty. It's more like saying a guaranteed done fact. So when God says, I give you hope, what he's saying is you can take it to the bank, you can mark it down, you can count it as done. There is no uncertainty, there is no maybe. It's as if it's already done. So consider it done is the kind of hope that God gives. The writer of Hebrews this morning is going to talk about this idea of God gives his Christians, his believers, a hope. And this hope, what it can produce for you is it can become an anchor for your very soul. Because it's not a maybe hope, it's a certain hope. There is no shadow of doubt about God's hope here that he gives for his children. If you would, please join me in standing for the reading of God's word. In Hebrews 6, starting in verse 13, he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray for a moment. 
God, thank you that we can gather together and come here and hear those wonderful hymns, those beautiful songs that just declare of your great love for us and Jesus, your great sacrifice for us. But how wonderful your name is to blot out any sin, no matter how bad of a transgression it is. Just by faith in your name, you blot it out forever. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Now, Father, I ask that you would focus my thoughts and my words, that Holy Spirit, you would produce in every ear here, Lord, a, a willing heart to listen and to hear and to heed your word. And I'd ask that your truth would come out clearly from the book of Hebrews this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. I apologize. I didn't have the verses for you up there. They'll be throughout the sermon as we go, but just realize that. Now, this section, again, is coming on the heels of a longer conversation that we've been in for three weeks. This idea of avoiding spiritual laziness. And he's been walking his listeners, his hearers, through, I believe the author of this was probably a pastor, and he's being very pastorally minded, trying to help them through a situation spiritually. His people could be facing persecution physically, emotionally, spiritually. I mean, remember, these are Jews who converted to Christ and their Jewish kindred, their brethren, do not like that, will not like that. They have been culled out from certain parts of society. They've probably lost employment opportunities, probably lost family relationships, all because they've said, I no longer believe in the Judaism that we once held dear because Christ is the Messiah of Judaism, so he's my Savior. A lot of people wouldn't have liked that. It's possible their faith was dwaning, it was dwindling. It's possible they were sort of lagging behind in pressing on in their faithfulness. So he writes to sort of coax them up, coax them along, encourage them to get back on the track and press on into greater faithfulness, keeping Christ as number one in their life with their eyes on Christ, never giving up. And we've walked through just a few things here. In summary, just to say what he kind of walked them through on this little mini lecture he gave, he wanted to encourage them to not get more spiritually immature, but press on to greater maturity, greater service to the Lord. And he gave them this encouragement that stop just reviewing the basics, press on. But then he started to give a warning that if you don't do that, you could prove that your faith was never true to begin with. Like those who fell away. And we went through that troubling passage. It's hard to interpret. But I took the view that these were never really Christians to begin with. Their faith was never authentic. They joined the family. They visited the family events, but they were never a part of the family of God. And at a point in time, they had had enough and said, I'm out. I'm no longer even going to fake that I identify with the family of God anymore. And they could have been sitting back and said, well, what about me? What if uh, my faith is fake? What if next year I prove that my faith wasn't real? But we ended last week with this encouragement to say, no, there is a great confidence God gives his children. And it is the confidence to never quit your faith, to press on to greater faithfulness. God never ignores what any little thing you may do to serve him. He never ignores, he never overlooks it. He'll never abandon you. So press on with that confidence. And here we come here and he's going to say, okay, let me share one more thing and we'll move on to some deeper stuff. And it's this. He says, I want to give you hope this morning. He wants his listeners to have a hope that they can hold on to. And this hope should anchor their soul. Let them have greater security in life, not security of salvation, but to live life, the daily life, and to press on and not quit in their obedience and their faithfulness to the Lord. He's going to say things like this. God's promise to his children, it's backed by God himself. God's promise of salvation and an eternal home in heaven, it's secured by God's own nature and his character. 
So because of that fact, when God gives you a promise, for example, a promise to save you through faith in Jesus Christ, when he gives you that promise, then the writer here is going to say this morning, that should lead to hope that no matter what happens down here, your soul is secure. No matter what happens to your physical life here, your spiritual life is safe and sound, and you have a home in eternity and glory with the Lord. That hope is not a maybe God does that for me. It's no, it's as good as done. So I'm going to live my life now knowing no matter what happens to me here, nothing can destroy my soul because God has it in his hands. So I'm going to press on no matter what, knowing what's awaiting for me there in glory. So Christians can have full assurance that their salvation and future glory with God, there's no doubt that God will ever fail them. He will not fail them. And that hope provided by God gives Christians the confidence and encouragement to hold fast to our faith and press on to maturity and with confidence that God has our life in his hands. So let's look at this theme this morning. How can we have this hope that anchors the soul? Let's start with God's promise to Abraham. This is where he starts in the passage. He says, let me share with you a case study about a man named Abraham. And we'll look at him as a model and an example of how God gives someone a promise and what happens when he does that. In here in Hebrews 6.12, he says, I'm backing up one verse, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. If you remember, if you were here last week, how we ended, I said we need to have the right spiritual models to imitate. That's how he ended 6.12. So he says you need to imitate those who through their faith and trials and tribulations, their faith was tested, but they come out a winner. They never abandoned their faith in God, and they got the promise. Well, that leads to verse 13. He says, let me tell you who one of these guys is. It's Abraham. In Hebrews 6, 13, he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So we're told here, let's look at Abraham as a case study. He's a model example of someone to imitate. Abraham lived by faith for many years and patiently carried on until God fulfilled that promise that he gave him. Abraham is a model for us of someone who had his faith tested many times over for many years, but he endured all of those trials. He never abandoned his faithfulness to the Lord. And because of this, why does he bring Abraham up? Well, again, because he's a perfect example for us today to say, I need to imitate a faith like Abraham. And he's a model that if you do that, you obtain the promise of God, just like Abraham did. So let's look at this promise God made Abraham. So God made a promise to Abraham. And in the first part of the verse 13, I just want to look at that phrase for when God made a promise to Abraham. Let's explore that for a moment and get the background here. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12:1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, his name's later changed to Abraham. So right now it's Abram. He says, go from your country and your kindred to your, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whom, him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham, Abram, now notice this, he was 75 years old. 75 years old when God first speaks to him and gives him this promise. And it says that he set out in Genesis 12, 4, Abram set out as the Lord had told him. Lot went with him. He was 75 years old. He departed from Haran. He took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. 
And I want to skip the rest of that there. But I just want you to see that Abram was, again, 75 when this whole journey started. And in Genesis 12, 7, God says to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. So there's a promise. He's promised that he will basically have a nation with more nations to come from him and his wife. Their family tree will spawn a nation on God's behalf on the planet. But again, some historical facts here that are very important. He's 75 when this whole thing started. Sarah's roughly 10 years younger than him, so she's around 65. And he trusted God's word, and he left everything he'd ever known for 75 years. Left his homeland, left his family, his cousins, everything behind that he'd known. Now, what's so interesting about this is him and Sarah have no child, not one single child of their own. And yet the promise God gave him was, I'll give you so many offspring they make a nation. Well, for that to come true, you have to at least have one child, don't you? But he has zero children. And yet God promised this to him, but Abram obeyed. He faithfully goes. Now we fast forward about 10 or 11 years and we go to Genesis 15. So for 10 to 11 years, Abram's just been following the Lord faithfully wherever he said go. No child yet. And yet he believes this promise that God made to him. And Genesis 15 says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Again, has no child yet. Verse 2, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So even Abram says, Look, God, I believe you, but how is this going to work? Because my next right-hand guy that's like my foreman for all my land and my farm here, he's going to get everything I have because I don't even have my own child yet. But verse 3 goes on. Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Again, God reiterates, No, you will physically have a son, you and Sarah. That one is the one I'm talking about. In verse 5, he brings Abram outside and says, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. Again, at this point, he's 85, 86 years old, no child, living on faith that he'll eventually have a child, trusting God's promise, just going about life and still no child for all these years. But look at verse 6. He believed the Lord. He took God at his word. He expressed faith in that promise. And it says Abram was then given righteousness by God. He was saved by faith. So God reconfirmed to Abram again the covenant, the promise, the oath that he would have a son from his own body. Abram believed God by faith. Now we fast forward one more time here to another instance. Abram and Sarah devise a plan. You, you may know the story if you've read the Old Testament. They devise a plan. They think they're going to help God out. So they Abram marries Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, and says, look, I could have a child through her, and then that child will belong to us, though. I don't have time to go into this, but that is a, a weird, it's weird to us, but to them that was a cultural thing. If you were a woman and you're married to a husband and you can't produce a child for your husband, you're barren, it's actually culturally acceptable that you take your sort of right handmaid, your top servant, and you could give her to your husband, and she would act as a type of a surrogate mother on your behalf. The child would be your own and your husband's, but physically it came from your servant. So they're going to follow that process that was culturally okay for them, 
and help God out. But when they do that, God reminds them, that is not what I had in mind. That son, his name was Ishmael, he's not the one. He's not the one I'm still talking about. So God appears to Abraham again in Genesis 17, and he says, Abram was 99 years old. We fast forward it again. He's almost 100. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. He keeps repeating this to Abram for decades now, but he still hasn't had one son. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Again, not a son yet, but God's pressing it in. I'm even going to change your name. I'm going to give you a new identity that that name means father of a multitude. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you to your offspring after you. So Abram, now Abraham, has journeyed with God from age 75 to 99, 24 years. And he has no promised son yet. Now he has Ishmael, but that's not the promised son. That was Abraham taking matters in his own hands. He doesn't count. We're talking about the son that God promised 20, what did I say, 24 years ago. That one hasn't happened yet. But we... Go one year forward. Abram is Abraham is a hundred, and Isaac is born. In Genesis twenty one, it says the Lord visited Sarah, as He had said. The Lord did to Sarah. Notice as He had promised. In Genesis twenty one one, it says God fulfilled that promise. Now, In Genesis twenty one two, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken of. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him and Sarah Isaac. His name means laughter, because they said, God's made, a, made fools of us. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born to him. So Sarah would have been about 90. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now, God kept his word, is the point of that. His promise was certain. And it took time. It, it took well over 24, 25 years. But God kept his promise. He did not fail to keep his promise. So let's go back to Hebrews 6.13 with that, that story in mind. God made a promise to Abraham, he says in Hebrews. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, God swore by himself. So God, on the one hand, made a promise to Abraham. That promise was sure and certain. It was as good as done. It took over 20 years, but it happened. Now he's going to go one step further and say this point. Not only did God make a promise to Abraham, he swore an oath to Abraham. He swore an oath. So as, it's as if God's promise wasn't enough, and it was enough. God went one step further for Abraham and made an oath to Abraham. An oath was very important in Bible times. Oath was like our version of a contract. But you have to remember in their day, they had no modern legal system. They did not have contracts on paper. They didn't have modern police force or uh, judges or attorneys. They didn't have a modern, modern legal system to enforce contracts. They didn't have all that stuff. So what did they do? Well, they still had a type of a legal system. It was a little more, a little more brutal, but it worked. What, what they would do is if we enter into an agreement is we would make a covenant. And during this covenant, we might swear an oath. 
And if I swear an oath to you, I'm basically saying this. I promise you I will do ABC. I promise you that these things I will do. And then I might say to prove to you that I mean real business. I might say something like, I swear to my God that I will do what I said to you. They would invoke their deity that they followed as proof that their oath would come true. They would never break their oath. Now, this meant something to them in their day. Today, if we entered into an agreement, I mean, let's be honest, if, if we entered into a legal agreement, you go buy a home or a car, you can't go to the, the dealership and buy a vehicle and they say, okay, the car's, you know, 30000 or whatever it is and here's your payment plan. It'd be awesome if you could just stand up and say, I swear by God most high, I will make every payment for the next five years. No paperwork's needed. They will look at you and say, that's wonderful, but please still sign here. We are going to have a contract on paper. But that's kind of how they worked back then. They would say, I swear to God most high, I am not going to break my oath. This will happen. And people took that. And if they didn't, if they broke their oath, what they were basically saying is, by the power of my God, I'm calling on him to judge me and punish me if I break this oath. So people took that, that serious. Now, again, the point with an oath, though, was this, the, the big idea I want us to see. They invoked a higher power than themselves, a higher authority. If you and me made an oath back then, we would call upon a higher being than you and me to ratify that oath as certain. So that's why I said usually they invoked the name of their God or gods that they worshipped. So the writer here is drawing our attention to this concept to say God didn't just promise Abraham something. That was enough, but he went a step further. He used something common for their day and reconfirmed a second step, sort of, to Abraham that he meant business. He says God swore an oath to Abraham as well. Now notice, though, what he said in Hebrews 6.13. It says, since he, that's God, had no one greater by whom to swear, then who did God swear his oath by? Himself. There's no higher being than God. No higher authority than God. So when God swore that oath to Abraham, who did he invoke? I mean, God couldn't say, I swear by my God I'll do this, Abraham. That would have been blasphemous. God said, I swear by myself that I'll make this come true for you, Abraham. He had no one else hired to invoke, so he invoked his own name. But he did all of this for Abraham's benefit. Look at verse 14. This is what God said, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now here he's referring to a specific story in Abraham's life found in Genesis 22. It's a very dark story, very weird. You may know of it. Abraham has had Isaac. Isaac has grown up. He's a young man. He's, some scholars say, 18 to 22, 24. He's a young adult, not a child. And then this story happens in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22... God tells Abraham to take his son, his beloved son, and go sacrifice him, kill his son, and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice on an altar, all in the name of God. And the story goes that Abraham took Isaac, and they journeyed to this mountain, and they're traveling up this mountain, and Isaac sees the wood, the fire, the rope, and then asks his dad, we have all the stuff here to make a sacrifice, but we're missing one very important thing, the actual sacrifice. And Abram's response was, God will provide that, don't worry. But they march on, 
And I want you to know, if you read that story, what I find interesting, I stress to you Isaac's age probably. He could have subdued his father and overpowered him and defended himself. Isaac showed as much faith as Abraham did in that story. He willfully let his father bind him and lay him on an altar, and he's ready to kill Isaac, his son. And before he does, the Lord calls out from heaven and says, Abraham, stop. You have proven your faith is, is sure and solid. And then he provides a ram that was caught in a thicket to be offered up instead. But what I want you to see, though, is what comes at the end of that story in Genesis 22, verse 15. It says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Look at verse 16. Here's what the writer of Hebrews was calling on. It says in Genesis 22:16, this is the Lord talking, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So in that scene there is what I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying. Look what happened here. God said, I didn't just make a promise to you, Abraham. I'm going to now swear an oath to you that I will make your offspring like nations. And from your offspring, the Messiah will come to bless all people of the earth. Abraham, take that to the bank, count it down. It will happen. And to prove to you even more, I will swear an oath. And then it says here, by myself. The Lord said, by my own authority, my own power, my own nature and character, I will back up this oath. It will happen. So Abraham then was promised and given an oath. Those two things. And he faithfully carried on and obtained the promise, it says, in verse, in he, back in Hebrews 6.15, and Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Came true. He's our model. But however, the point of the author is not really to show us how good Abraham was. That'll come in chapter 11. His point is for us to see something about God here. It's about God's faithfulness. God will never break his promises. God will never break his oaths. And Abraham is a proof story for us that he never will. It's a case study for us today to think about if God gives me a promise and I hope in that promise, how sure can I be in it? Well, as sure that you can say it's an anchor for your soul. Now, here's the next stuff. God's promise then to his people gives certain hope. So he started with let's look at what he did with Abraham, but now he's going to say let's talk about for us today though. What does that story with Abraham have to do with us? What can we learn here? In verses 16 through 20, then he's going to say, okay, well, here's the deal. With what he did with Abraham, we can adopt that today and walk away with sure, steadfast hope that anchors our soul. So he says here in verse 16, this point, people's oaths are backed by a higher authority. In chapter 6, verse 16, he says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So he's just sort of reminding us, I told you that story with Abraham, and remember, this is a common thing. People make promises to each other, and they'll back it with an oath. And when they make that oath, they invoke a higher authority, a higher power. That is valid. If a person's oath to another person is valid, he's trying to make a point of, if that is valid, then in an even greater sense, if God makes an oath, you should consider it even more serious and more valid. We have contracts today, like I said. These contracts, when we sign them, no matter what the contract's about, 
what we're really doing is we're signing it saying, if one of us breaks the terms of this agreement, then I can sue you. And I can get an attorney and go to a court system. I can have the attorney make my case for how you broke the terms of the agreement. You have a chance to defend yourself when we go back and forth. But eventually, a judgment is rendered. Now, here's the thing with our system. If you don't like that judgment, and I don't understand this all works, I'm not an attorney, but I know there's some way, though, within reason, I believe, that if you don't like how the judgment went for you, you can appeal it. You can go to a higher judge for another system. And then you can keep appealing that all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And apparently, when the Supreme Court renders a judgment, that's supposed to be it. Whatever they said settles it. Now, that's my simplistic non-attorney version of how that works. But in a way here, he's saying, look, if back then their oaths could be given with a promise and it was valid, and today we understand this concept that I can have a contract and it's enforceable by law and a judge can render a judgment on it and we're supposed to abide by it, and all of this is valid and has weight and authority. His point is, okay, if we're used to that, then we should think no differently about God. He is higher than the Supreme Court of the United States of America. He's higher than any judge of our land. And when he renders a judgment or a verdict, it's as good as done. If he makes a promise, if he swears an oath, there is no higher appeal you can go to to get a different judgment or a different oath or a better promise. His is the highest. And that's what he says God wanted to do here. God desires to prove that his promise is certain. God desires to prove his promise is certain. Look at verse 17 now. He says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So now he's bringing it to our day or to his day, but it still applies to us today. And he says, remember the story of Abraham. God gave a promise and he swore an oath by his own power and authority. He says, why did God do that? He didn't have to swear an oath. God's word is enough. It's sufficient. So why did God go a step further with the oath? He did it to condescend to our human level, to help us have even greater confidence and assurance that God meant what he said. That when God says to us, you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, we can never doubt that. He swore an oath to prove, I mean it, I will save your soul. I will grant you a home in heaven by your faith. I will declare you righteous by your faith. That will never change. It will never fail. God wanted to be even more convincing to people that his promise of our salvation, our hope, will never change. Notice that phrase, his unchangeable character for his purpose. Unchangeable. God swore that oath because he wanted us to see from that story of Abraham that when he gives us a promise, like a promise of salvation, he'll never revoke it. He'll never change it. Think about the Supreme Court I just talked about. They just overturned Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision. So even the highest court in our land can have one decision rendered, but decades later, it can be altered. It can be either overdone or overturned or changed or amended. They can, a, a new court of judges come in with a different view on the law, and they can render a different decision. But here he says, God does not do that. God can never say, I will save your soul by faith in my son, and one day say, I've changed my mind. I'm overturning that previous decision I made 2,000 years ago. He says it's unchangeable. His purpose for his children will never change. He guaranteed it with an oath. He swore it by his own power and authority. God was essentially saying this, I swear 
that this promise will come true as long as God lives. Again, this is God sort of saying that. Or, or if God said, I swear that this promise will come true or else God be judged. Well, neither of those can be false. God can never die. He always live. God never lies and God can never be judged. So if he swears an oath, it's going to happen. It'll never fail. He swore that oath to Abraham and the writer of Hebrews says here, he swore each of you an oath that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, his oath to you is I will save you. I will forgive you from now and for all eternity, and I will give you a home in heaven that never changes, never goes away. So what God, I want to share this point then. He's going to lead to the bigger stuff here. Look at verse 18, and he's going to say something like this. I want you to think with me in how I say this point. What God cannot do, what God cannot do, guarantees our hope is certain. Think about that. What God cannot do, actually guarantees you and me that our hope in him will never fail. In verse 18, it says, So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Did you know that there are things God cannot do? I think sometimes we don't think about that. There are things God cannot do, and that is a wonderful thing for you and I. Because the things God cannot do, you don't want him to be able to do. The things that God cannot do are things you and I can do, and they're not good things. God cannot sin. You and I can sin, but God cannot sin. God cannot trick you. He can't betray you. He can't say one thing today and completely go against it tomorrow. He cannot. Not that he will not. He cannot. It's not that he will never try to. It's he doesn't even have an ability to. It's not within his nature to do things. And right here he says, it's impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. Well, because of that fact that God cannot do something, he cannot lie, his point then is you and I can take full assurance, full hope, that what God says to us will always be true. Because he doesn't even have an ability to lie to us, to change it. He says that by two unchangeable things, the oath and the promise are the, the two things there. He guarantees that he will never change. Sorry, I skipped ahead to verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. So two unchangeable things. These two things, I believe, are God's promise and the oath. God could have just gave a promise and that's enough. But no, he went further and gave an oath. Two things there. And he says they're unchangeable. God can't lie and they'll never change then that means there is strong encouragement for us to hold on to our faith and press on, knowing it'll never abandon me, God will never change, it'll never abandon me, my faith will never fail. It's really all on us to say, God, I'm going to keep trusting you like Abraham did and never stop pressing on. Because I know that if you've given me a promise, it's already done. It's not hope maybe, it's, it's already done. So I thought of trying to think of a, a way to explain this and this may sound silly, but I was opening our pantry, and we have, Ashley has two kinds of Ziploc bags. They're off-brand, but I call them all Ziploc bags. She has two kinds. There's the one kind that when you pull it out, it has the single line when you press and seal it. It's a single line. And then there's the other kind that on the box it says double sealed. Now, can you guess which one I pick 100% of the time? The double sealed. There's probably no point 
the single's probably fine for my needs. But because it tells me it's double sealed, I want that one. I want the one that has extra security. This Ziploc bag has two lines running through it. So when I seal it, I hear the zipper run the two clicks through there, you know, two lines running through. And I feel better about my choice that this bag is double sealed. And I walk away never doubting the bag's integrity. In a way, he's saying, listen, God could have just gave a promise that's one seal, but he went further and gave us two seals. He gave a promise and he swore an oath by his own name so that when we read God's promises and we hear what he says he will do for us, there should be absolutely no doubt it's doubly secured that God will never fail, he'll never lie, he'll never change. It is as good as done. And here he says, in that same way is what God's done for us. He gave an oath and a promise, they're unchangeable. And by these two things, God wanted to even more greatly convince us that he meant what he said. It's impossible for God to lie, he says. Titus 1-2 says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Even Paul affirms this. Yep, God never lies. Whatever he promised, it's happening. Now, why does this matter to us? Because he says, those of us who have fled, the ESV I'm reading from in verse 18 says, those who have fled for refuge, yours may just say, have fled. The, uh, the word is a refugee. Refugees are people that have left their land due to a war or a problem going on. They're, they were in danger where they used to be, and they fled to safety and security. That's this word, fled for refuge. He's saying, us who have left the danger, the danger of sin, the danger of being judged for our sins, we have fled that danger. Where have we sought refuge? In Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ, he's provided us refuge, safety, and security. So he says, those of us then who have fled from that danger and sought refuge in the Lord, we can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that we are saved for all eternity. God gives us a home in heaven. He is with us. He is our God. He will never abandon us. God does not give us hope like we talked about in the beginning. He doesn't give us hope that's maybe God will save my soul or maybe God is for me. Maybe God's with me. No, when he says you have hope, it's already done. So live your life as if you're thinking to yourself, it's already good and done. It's already over with. He's already given me what he said he would give me. This hope then, again, will never fail. God will never change his mind on it. It's backed by the nature and character of God himself. That means, by definition, God's promise to you can never fail. Now, this I thought of something here, too, to try to talk about this idea. And I thought about our money system in America. If you pull out a currency, a dollar bill, it will tell you that it is a note from the federal treasury. And you can use that dollar bill or whatever it is to exchange goods and services. That dollar bill, that paper money, technically, it's pointless, it's worthless. That paper money, that green, has no value in and of itself. What it has value in is it's backed by the U.S. Treasury. They say we'll honor that note. Now the Value fluctuates, I know, but that's not the point of the example. Then, if you think in an even greater sense, your bank, you go to a bank, you deposit money in it, they'll have these letters, FDIC insured. And you want that. Because the government is saying to you, your money in this account is insured by the federal treasury. It's backed by us. They're basically saying to you, your bank cannot say to you one day, 
I'm sorry you don't have funds in your account. And you say, well, what happened to it? Did I spend it? No, we took it. Well, where is it? Uh, it doesn't matter. We just took your money. We needed it to loan people other money so we could make money. We can't give you your money today. FDIC says, no, you're guaranteed your money. The treasury should step in and give you your money. It's backed. And here you think about that. We know governments can let us down. Even those types of things are not a done deal at times. But here he says, no, the promises of God are backed by God's own nature and character. They will never, ever fail. So the word hope here that he says, again, I stress to you, is not like our definition. It's different. Here's a definition I like that I found. This word for hope means the looking forward to something with reason or confidence, respecting that it will be fulfilled. It means that you have expectation and joy because you're fully confident that it's going to happen for you. In the New Testament, whenever it mentions God giving hope, it's never a maybe. It's always it will happen. It's done. This word describes a settled certainty. That's the key. It's a certainty combined with a confident expectation based on God's word, based on God. He's the insurer of the promise, the backer. Final point, I'll be quick. I want to share with you. So how does this all anchor the soul? God's promise and his oath gives us hope, and that hope anchors our soul. He says, well, okay, what does that hope do for us then? If you would look at verse 19, he says, we have this as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This word soul is interesting. It does not mean just your soul that leaves your body and goes to heaven. This word soul is more where we get our English word psyche, your psychology. It was a catch-all word for the non-physical part of your being. Your thoughts, your mind, your emotions... Yes, your soul, like when we say you have a good heart, you have good nature, good character. But it's a catch-all term for everything about you that really makes you you. Your emotions and your thoughts and your will and your hopes and your dreams. That's your, your psyche, what makes you up as a person. He says here, okay, think about that, and that's what he means by soul. And he says something very fascinating here. If you catch on to that hope from God and you let it sink in, he says that will be to you an anchor for your very soul, for your life. Not just your soul in heaven. He's talking more than that. He means your very existence even here in this life until you get to heaven. You can have hope in God that will solidify and make your life like an anchor. It'll anchor it to God so that no matter what's going on in this life around you, you're not going to get blown away. You're not going to get carried away. You're anchored to God's hope, to his promise. What do anchors do? We know what they do. They hold the ship where they need to be. A ship can drop the anchor and the waves can crash on it and it might bob around a little, but it won't float away. It stays in that position because the anchor holds it down, it holds it there. He says, well, the hope that God gives you acts like an anchor for your life. It holds your life steady and stable so that no matter what's going on, you're not being blown here and there, you're steady and you're stable and you're secure Trusting and knowing that God has everything in control. And this is hard. This is easier said than done. But what he's really saying to us this morning is, if you let the promise of God filter your mind and your heart, and you have hope, you know you're saved from your sins, you know you have home in glory, then what should happen is, your life down here until you get to the glory and the beyond 
your life lived here, no matter what happens, should always be filtered by that hope, knowing that I know life could be bad right now, but my soul is secure. I'm steady. Why? Because I have hope, and that hope means God has already done for me what he said he'll do. His point is that should function for us as a steadying rock for us in our life. I want you to think of it like this. Whatever problem comes into your life, as bad as it may be, and there can be bad ones, you could have a bad medical report, you could have terrible decisions you have to make with your family or yourself, choices you're trying to ponder through, should we do this or that, you could have a situation come up with a child, you could lose a job, whatever it is. A bad situation comes up as bad as it may be. You need to have a top-down approach to it rather than a bottom-up. A bottom-up approach to life's problems says, oh my gosh, God, how could you let this happen? That's bottom-up. That's us viewing God based on our bad situation. But what he calls for here is have the opposite. Look at your bad situation and view it from God. Don't view God from your situation. View your situation from God. Go top-down. View your situation and say, this is bad. I don't like it. It's terrible. God, please help me. But God, I know that no matter what, you're holding my life. You are anchoring my soul. So I can go through this terrible disease or problem or whatever it is, knowing that even if my body is wracked and, and in shambles physically due to an illness or whatever situation, my soul is secure though. And I'll get a new one there. Now that doesn't you know, make it easy, but it can make your mind process your problem a lot better to view it from God and not from your problem. So he then says here, that's the kind of hope God gives us. It can steady your life, can hold it firm so that no matter the waves of life are throwing at you, you're steady and secure, knowing that God has your life guided in his hands. This hope he then ends with and says, this hope also anchors you behind the veil. In the end of verse 19, he says, it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Just to end here, he says, okay, it steadies and secures your life, but here's what else it does. It gives you the confidence of knowing no matter what happens in your life here, nothing can take away God's love for you or your salvation because your hope is not here in this life, anchored here. It's anchored there in God's temple behind the veil. The veil in the Old Testament temple separated the holy room and the most holy. The most holy was where God's presence was for Israel. And only one person, one time a year, could go into the holy of holy place, the high priest. Only him, and only one time a year. And here he says, Jesus has acted as our high priest. If you have faith in him, he's gone before you into the heavenly temple, and he's gone behind the veil that separates the holy room to the most holy room, where God's throne is. He's there at the throne of God, pleading your case, your cause, your salvation before God's throne. And here he says, that's the kind of hope God gives you. That no matter what happens here, you're anchored there in God's temple right next to his throne. And nothing will ever take that away from you. Psalm 110 verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn, again here's an oath, and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus will never not be your savior if he's your savior today. He'll never change his mind either about you. He'll never say, I know I died for your sins, but I take it back. I know I'm pleading your case before the Father, but I just don't like you anymore. I'm not doing that. He's your priest forever, 
and ever and ever. So I want to end with reading a portion of this hymn I like. And in this hymn, I think it's called Before the Throne of God. It says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. My life is hid with Christ on high. I wanted to end with that just to say that to me perfectly captures what we're trying to say this morning. Your life can have a lot of problems. I mean, these are real problems. I'm not trying to negate them, but how can we have sure and steadfast hope no matter what? By looking on high, saying my hope is not here, it's there. And it will always be there as long as I'm in Christ. God is always my God and Jesus is always my Savior. So we must remember that for the believer, hope is not looking with uncertainty or merely a possibility. Rather, our hope that God gives us is a guarantee that he's already done it for us. That should spur each and every one of us to greater effort in living our Christian life here on this earth, knowing that God has us secure no matter what. So this morning, I want to just say, I hope you know that peace from God. I hope you know that salvation from Jesus. If you don't, today is the day to know when you leave, I have a hope secure and steadfast. It'll never change no matter what. If you don't, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. Christians, if you're here, then please take this confidence that no matter what's going on in your life, God already knows it. He's already there. Yes, he may allow it for a time and it may seem terrible, but it can't ever take away your hope in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Hebrews as challenging and deep as it can be. Thank you, though, that it provides us promises like today that nothing, nothing in this life can remove your love from us. Nothing can take away our salvation. So God, I pray that you would, starting with me and everyone here, would you use this hope, help us to see how this hope should press us on in our daily lives to live more for you faithfully and keep pressing on with greater service, knowing no matter what happens here, you have us up there. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins. In your son's name I pray, amen.